This week, a deep dive with billionaire Ray Dalio. Okay, uh, here goes. The explorer and hedge fund founder shares his passion for the ocean. I want to thrill them, and as a result, they'll protect the ocean and explore it more. Secrets to building a financial powerhouse. I think the greatest tragedy of mankind is... And intimate moments with a world leader. You've met with Putin, and what did the two of you talk about? Plus, Dalio opens up about witnessing his mother's death. I um, tried to revive her. And how he saved his son from suicide. He was about to to take his life because of the pain of the depression. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. How did the sea adventures of Jacques Cousteau impact you as a child? Well, I, you know, watched them on TV and I thought, wow, that was cool um not only going on the, the sea but um the, the things that were seen the adventure the discovery and then doing it with uh with friends and scientists who were interested in it so it had an effect that led me to dive and because of diving i got to see this directly and so you know it excited me and i, I think you learned to dive when you were in your 20s um what why do you think Um, ocean exploration is more important than space exploration, which seems to be what has gotten all the attention as of recently. Well, I think it's, I think it's a lot more exciting, a lot more important because two thirds of the world's surface, 72% to be exact of the world's surface is the ocean. And um, if you take the highest point, Mount Everest, and you take the deepest spot, the Marianas Trench, they're about the same distance. So that means that the world under the ocean surface is about twice the size of the world, all continents combined, and it's unexplored and it's here. You're not gonna see aliens in outer space. You're gonna see aliens down when you go under the sea and you see life of all different forms, and and it's quite something. and by your estimation, how much of the oceans actually been explored? Less than 5%. All the estimates are less than 5% of the ocean. And t- tell about the giant squid and the subsequent conversation with your son that was kind of convincing you to found the Lucia Productions. When I bought a Lucia, which was an exploration ship, um, you know, I was excited because scientists could go on it. And we can make all these great discoveries and all that. And um, um, one of the plans was to discover the giant squid, because as you know, it's a legendary creature and all of that, and nobody's filmed it um, in, its, in its spots. And so um, what we, we did that. It was a combination of the Discovery Channel and a Japanese uh, station, NHK, and they had worked uh, for something like seven years and spent something like $10 million to get the cameras and everything right. And there were these three scientists from different parts of the world who were obsessed with discovering it and they were on the ship. And so uh, we we did that. And and okay, that was something because they, like the, the one Japanese scientist who really made the great discovery and you could see it on uh, Discovery Channel, um, he, anyway, he had 81 dives and only one of them, he was able to do that. So that got me hooked. What was it about that? Like, was it just seeing it visually there or 
like um well first i mean there were so many dimensions to it um first it was this iconic creature 20,000 leagues under the sea everybody know, known it and couldn't reach it and um and so and there was such a thrill by particularly those scientists who were you know uh, obsessed by it so all of that was exciting and i was lucky to have a son who was as a filmmaker in national geographic and so he was hooked and we were hooked together on that and then james cameron who um i knew and uh and and he said you know you gotta capture this stuff and i i went back to my memory of jacques Cousteau and what it meant to me the thrill and so on and i felt the ocean's important so that's how it that's what it meant to me explain the difference between uh your old ship and this new one uh, my own old ship was a, a remarkable ship um, 185 feet, uh, A-frame crane, uh, dropped um, man submersibles and other things. Great. Um, uh, this one is, on the other hand, twice the size. It's got the helicopter pad on the front. It's got the A-frames on the bottom, and it's got a spot, the projector, where we can drop remote-operated vehicles that can go down 6,000 meters from. It can hold probably three times as many scientists. It's a 21st century, super-equipped, high-capacity vehicle. What was involved, or what was your involvement with designing it? Um, well, what I, I'm so lucky. I may get to make the decisions, but I'm so lucky to work with the best in the world yeah, sure. who are thrilled to do it, you know? So um, I got the, the best oceanographers, the best um, institutions for uh, designing what would be the best vehicle. And I, then I had Jim Cameron and BBC and National Geographic um, design what was the best media component of that. And then I had that interacted. And so I would learn and you know, express some preferences, but basically, I drew on the best to create that vehicle. So uh, it was really relying on these remarkable other people to work well together to make it. Explain the importance of being able to go down six thousand meters. Well, six thousand meters covers about ninety percent of the ocean, so you could do it um, anywhere. You know, so you can see anywhere. Um, so that's a big deal. Um, and what's that importance? Well, like I say, it's think about, it's like, um, more than all the continents around that hasn't been discovered. So that's what it looks like. Um, why do you want to get to a point where, uh, kids in classrooms could actually have the ability to, uh, remote operate? I want to thrill them. I, I want to thrill everyone who's going to see it on social media and see it on TV. Uh, and by thrilling them, um, they will realize how important it is. They will, it will be intellectually thrilling and emotionally thrilling. And as a result, they'll <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> protect the ocean and explore it more. How valuable is being able to uh, genome sequence on site? Well, it's, it's, it's hugely important because it allows you to adapt um, very quickly. Um, 
you know, there are techniques right now um, that by knowing not only the sequencing, but also by f f uh, sampling the, D the DNA that's in the uh, ocean, you can know what species are there and so on. And you can then very, very quickly get to see what you want to see. So it's, it, you know, it's very important by being able to interact with the scientists. It's, it, you know, it makes everything real time rather than if you didn't do it on site, you know, you bring it back and you show it to somebody, they learn, and then they say, we wish we did these other things. So you can skip the we wishing part and you can just go do it directly. Uh, so you've had your own species of coral named after you. Uh, why for the inaugural mission on the new ship, uh, was it important to start with the exploration of super coral? Well, um, you know, there's so many things we could have started with. Um, I think that the reason that's also particularly important, many things are important, but it's such a um, litmus test of uh, the health of the sea. And um, the, the vast majority of species uh, live in coral. And so um, it's, um, it's, it's important for those reasons. I, I want to run through some of the notable uh, trips you've been on over the years and just kind of get what uh, comes to mind. The uh, unexplored waters of Antarctica. It's a different ecosystem. Uh, for example, because the cold water has such an effect, you get giant species and you get different um, types of um, coral and different types of um, everything, really. I was on with Paul Nicklin, who is a great explorer and a great um, photographer um, and filmmaker. And I'll give you a, a you know, moment. Like, um, he took me on to dive uh, with uh, leopard seals, about, um, a leopard seal. You know, I don't know, 2,500 pounds, just unbelievable. Um, and so we dove in and the leopard seal has got this penguin in its mouth. So we go in there and, uh, and it was magical to see how he could interact with the uh, leopard seal in a way that they started playing with each other. And the leopard seal wanted to give the penguin to him. He would put it out there and they would play. And, um, you know, that was just a, a, a little vignette. Your son, Mark, he was talking about how uh, one time he was, you know, down in the, the vehicle and like a, a big six-gilled shark uh, bumped it. Um, it. Any instances with you where you've been a little uneasy? I mean, not, not uneasy. Um, I but I've had so many mind-blowing experiences. I know um, we went down about a thousand meters, maybe a little less, and it's pitch black, it's dark. We turn the light on and all we see is some marine snow, nothing much. Shut the light off. And um, I was with a, um, uh, a, a neuroscientist who was studying um, the uh, uh, biofluorescence uh, and um, um, and so um, we flicked on a camera, a, a flash, and in response to the flash, 
all of these tiny animals come popping back, flashing back at us. So it was communication. It was like definitely otherworldly. Flash and then giant flash coming back. Anywhere you want to go that you haven't been? Well, I'm excited to be going to the Red Sea. So that's cool. But um, there's a little island uh, off of Mexico that has the largest um, school of mantis, uh, giant mantis. And, and that's exciting. So um, then there's in the Indian Ocean. I haven't been to the Indian Ocean yet. There's a time of year where there's great spawning or there's great migrations. Um, and to be in the middle of it where, you know, I can dive and be right in the middle of it is what is most exciting to me. But I, I would also say that going deep um, in places that I, that they don't know what's there um, is exciting because um, basically 85% of the species that are more than 350 feet down or more have bioluminescence or, um, or biofluorescence. And so to go deep and to see these other species and discover those new species and these odd things to see how they work is always exciting. It's, every trip is exciting. How do you think you're viewed by the people that know you best? I would guess, uh, and that I'm curious, I'm uh, adventurous, um, that I care deeply about the people. My, my friends and family are like extremely important in my life. Meaningful work and meaningful relationships are the most important thing. What are the qualities you value most in somebody else? There are two things that I said are required, which is, uh, reasonableness and consideration. And then once I've got past that, I like common sense, creativity, and character. Common sense, you know what that means. Creativity, creativity for me is a kick. And when I have people who like to imagine and build out things and like to be partners with me in doing that, um, I get a kick from that. And then character, high character is... Uh, mostly the capacity uh, to get yourself to do uh, the difficult and right things to do that are, um, and you know, what are the right things to do? They're the things that are good for you and also the people around you. Everything I've read about uber successful people is that, you know, each one's difficult in their own way. In what ways would you say you're difficult? I'm extremely straightforward. I give a lot of tough love. I have to be able to put what I believe to be true on the table and have others put what they believe to be true on the table and to have thoughtful disagreement. I'm never sure that I'm right. And I believe others might not be sure that they're right. So I like disagreement. Disagreement raises my probability of having the right answer. Um, and I like the honesty behind it. And that could be uh, difficult for some people. I was rereading your book this week in Principles, which is great, now, now read multiple times, but you start off the book by writing, you're a dumb shit who doesn't know much relative to what you need to know. Right. Explain that. What you don't know, what isn't in your head, 
is so vastly greater than anything that you could possibly have in your head, including what your opinions are. You might form your opinions, but the best way to get your opinions and so on is through that type of interaction that we're talking about with other people where, you know, you ask questions, you stress that you were uh, describing that. Um, How did I make progress um, in building the boat? You asked about how did I build the boat? Okay. I went to the smartest people I could find. And, and, and I loved it, you know, with that exchange. In anything I'm doing, I'm never sure that I'm right. It's out there. But when you can tap all of that intelligence and stress test yourself because you think I may not have adequate information to make the best possible decision, or even that type of decision making is not the best type of decision making for me, then you're not limited to what's in your head. I think the greatest tragedy of mankind, that's a big statement the greatest tragedy of mankind is people holding on to opinions in in their head that could be wrong. And they could so easily stress test them. That's what makes it a tragedy. They could so much better, make much better decisions if they can stress test those opinions and get the best thinking that's available to them. And it's your belief that your success is directly tied to your ability to deal with what you don't know. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love mistakes. Um, Like if you realize if you make a mistake or you have a bad time, there's a lesson in there. There are lessons. Um, so, you know, I have a saying, pain plus reflection equals progress. People are too much attached to wishing that reality would work in a certain way, and it doesn't work that way. And so if you can accept what is the lesson about how reality works and how can I deal with it better, that's what I mean by principles. If I can do that, I can make better decisions. And that's a great power. Going back to the uh, Great Recession, um, why was it during that time that you took uh, history books and old newspaper clippings and went day by day through the Great Depression? Well, we did that actually before the 2008 financial crisis, which is how we were able to anticipate it. But uh, what I learned uh, all along is that the things that surprised me in my life, mostly were things that didn't happen in my lifetime before, but happened in prior history. It started in 1971 when the uh, dollar was floated and we went off the gold standard. And, you know, I remember it was August 15th, Nixon gets on the television and explains that money as we know it will no longer exist. You can't get it for gold. And I walked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange And I thought this was a crisis and the stock exchange is up a lot and I didn't understand why. And then I went back in history and I saw the exact same thing happened on March 5th, 1933 by Roosevelt. And I studied those things. And so I learned that almost everything happens over and over again, but we make the mistake of approaching everything as a new thing. So it's not just that I like to read history. It's that I can't uh, make good decisions about tomorrow unless I have that broader perspective. So you're reasonably confident uh, in your assessment with the, the Great Recession. You go to the White House, you go to the Treasury, 
uh, back then? What are their responses? Well, it, it, um, the outlook that I took them through, wanted to take them through mechanistically, was implausible to them. Um, Which was that they, everything's going to collapse. Well, in a much more mechanical sort of way, there are these debts, and let's look at who holds the debts, and let's look at their cash flows, and why won't they be able to make the debt service payments, and mechanics that basically happened in the <clears throat> 1929 to 32 period, 28 to 32 period. Um, and you know, who was going to default in all of the, those mechanics. But because it didn't happen before um, in their lifetime, they thought it was, um, you know, um, you know, just implausible. But they didn't take the time and effort to go through the examinations of the merit of each of those, which, which I think was a prop. But they responded well, and uh, we had... From that point on, we had very good communications, and uh, you know they ended up doing uh, the right things. They, I think, they did it later than they should have done it, but um, um, you know that that was what the experience was like. Fast forward to the lunch you had with uh, then New York Fed President Tim Geithner. Uh, he had a little bit of a different reaction as you're explaining everything to him, right? It was interesting. Um, because uh, he was open-minded, very open-minded, and very curious. And, you know, he asked me, well, where did you get a lot of these numbers? Because the numbers kind of tell the story pretty well. So um, I showed him how to, you know, how we could do that. And, um, and that really was the beginning of um, a deeper relationship, which extended through the financial crisis and really up until now. And explain how your analysis allowed you to then perform for your clients during that period. Well, because we could anticipate these things happening and also, you know, we did the numbers, uh, we were able to position ourselves better. And I don't know, I think we were up to something like 10% when a lot of people lost a lot of money. Uh, and then in this current crisis that we're in now, obviously, because of COVID and the, the uh, uh, pandemic, um, how, how would you assess the impact that's had on your firm? Well, uh, we missed the pandemic. Um, and so as a result of that, during that sell-off, um, for the first time in, I think, it was, I don't know, 25 years, we lost money. And so that was um, you know, that wasn't good. Since then, we've um, um, done as expected. But we, we, the pandemic setback was um, uh, produced losses. And, you know, that was one of those cases, you know, pain plus reflection equals progress, you know. Bridgewater, uh, you know, is, I believe, on a nature reserve. Um, and now because of COVID, uh, some of the folks on your team are actually working outside in the woods. Yeah, we do that. Yeah. The weather has been great. Um, and nobody's response uh, required to be there. Uh, we have a process where, you know, it's all remote. And we had that set up before there was COVID because we wanted to have backup plans in case anything happens. A um, hurricane knocks it out or power grids go down and so on. So we were prepared. But uh, because we have this, uh, as you say, a it's a nature preserve that our main office is on. 
um, people work um, in beautiful spots outside uh, interacting sometimes. How do you think being alone a lot and an only child impacted you growing up? Well, let's see. I do know that my mother paid a lot of attention to me and I was very loved. Um, I suppose that had an effect on me. I was around adults more. Um, I don't know all the particulars of an only child psychology. I do know that I wish I had brothers and sisters and my friends would be sort of those brothers. Tell about the Saturday night movies with your mom. When I was a kid, I don't know, eight years old or so, I, and that, that time I would remember we would uh, watch uh, horror movies and she would make uh, cookies, chocolate chip cookies and that we would uh, together watch the watch the movie. So I, I remember that well, and I had a very close relationship with her. She was very loving. Uh, you know, everybody has seminal moments or kind of life-altering experiences, and one for you had to be when your mom passed away when you were 19. Well, it happened in front of me. Um, she had a heart attack. Um, and she was dying and, uh, she, you know, she was on the bed, um, and my dad was there and I, um, tried to revive her, you know, I didn't know mouth to mouth resuscitation and so on. And, um, and I remember that, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was a big moment at, at that time. Um, I couldn't imagine ever being able to smile or laugh again. I would uh, have conversations with her, mental conversations, because I would know what she would say under the particular circumstances. Uh, like what? Oh, it could be on anything. It was, um, uh, what, uh, you know, I don't know, friends, school, whatever it would be. And then I would imagine her saying, okay, well, do this. What do you think about that? And something along those lines. I was able to keep a relationship of sorts going with her. So, uh, yeah, it had a big effect on my life. It, was, it didn't uh, traumatize me. It didn't send me back. It didn't, uh, but it was, um, it was the first time somebody who I loved deeply uh, died. And I had to, and I went through that experience with my dad. Again, I was only child. So it was an experience that brought us closer together. And then from that point forward, we were, a lot closer together. I want to ask you this in terms of talking about the process of getting through that. Um, but in the the you know days and months that followed that, what, what was the lowest point for you personally? Well, first there's um, you know the trying to intellectualize it. There's I mean there's an emotional thing, but the confusion, the ambiguity, um, you know what will it be like? I mean, you know, she won't be there. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it was, you know, it was the missing, the ambiguity, a little bit of a numbness at first. And then once I got past the numbness, there was, uh, you know, the realization of that. And then intellectually, the, okay, how do I approach that? How should I do that? Um, it was that kind of experience, I suppose. What was the point in which you realized you were gonna be fine? When I started to laugh again, I mean, I think um, everybody loses um, 
somebody who they love very much. And when that happens for the first time, and when it happened for me for the first time, um, it's a process. It, so for me, um, it was a process that also makes one realize, made me realize that every, you're going to get past it. And that no matter what happens, practically, if you approach it well, it's going to be, there's going to be laughter, there's going to be great times, there's going to be other things you're going to think about, and so on. And you mentioned your dad and it bringing the two of you closer together. Prior to that, how did his job impact your guys' ability to be close? Well, he was a jazz musician, so he would uh, come along, uh, you know, he'd come home late at night, and then he would sleep late during the day, you know, maybe till noon or something. Um, and, um, and so we had a, a good relationship, but it was more, he was very, uh, he was a very strong man who um, also wanted to make sure that I was taking care of uh, my errands and doing things well. I mean, I think it was partially because he believed I should be that way. And my inclinations were very much the opposite. Like, uh, let's say, uh, we had a house and, uh, you know, and I had to mow the lawn. And, and um, you know, and he would say, mow the lawn, mow the lawn. And I'm sure I was a pain for him to mow the lawn. And like, I would remember, I didn't want to mow the lawn. And so, but I would, you know, I'd go there and I said, I'd mow the front yard and then I'll do the backyard tomorrow. And then it would rain for three days and the lawn would grow like that. And it was constant. Our relationships with the hedges had got to be cut. Okay. So then we would do that and so on. So, um, and there was a fair amount of that, but um, he also inspired me a lot because. Um, well, and this is a guy that, you know, fought in the Korean war and world war two, you had to teach you a lot about work ethic too. That's right. A really great character. So, um, and I was uh, almost the opposite, right? M meaning I was, um, I didn't take care of hardly anything. I didn't study in school. I had uh, go out and play with, you know, have a blast what, uh, all through my years uh, was disorganized and so on. Um, um, and so, uh, you know, he was my yin and I was to his yang. So he, as I said, my mother passed away. We were, we got close and then, um, and then I became a father and, um, that was another dimension. The relationship changed in, in you know, from our perspectives in, in lots of ways. Um, I understood him better. He could mentor me better. Um, and he was, a uh, you know, great for the family. So, um, uh, my my kids, I have four sons. Uh, you know, they all um, remember the times with him. Um, and you know, like at ninety-one years old, there would be snowstorms, and he would live on Long Island, and when we lived in Connecticut. Uh, and ninety-one, he'd get in the car. There could be two feet of snow. He he'd have his shovel, and he would uh, get there with shoveling those things out. And and he was a warm an entertaining man, you know? He, he, so anyway, yeah, that was what it was like. What it was what, like. What's this I heard about him playing with Sinatra? Uh, yeah, he played with, he played with Sinatra and, um, and other big bands and. Did he ever tell you anything about that? Uh, no, he didn't talk too much about it, but I got to see it, 
you know, sometimes he would take me when I was older, you know, I would go to the clubs and I would see that and I would see him play with these, these people. Why decide to change your last name? Uh, because my, my last name was Dalalio, D-A-L-L-O-L-I-O. Um, and it was long and it was difficult for people. So I uh, wanted to shorten it. That was, um, and so my dad um, and I s spoke about it and he thought it was a good idea too. I wanted to keep it Italian. I didn't want to change the complexion of it. And so I took out a syllable because it's a lot easier. Well, well, so you talked about how you weren't the best student growing up. I mean, the, the reality is, at least uh, according to you, below average student pre-college because, you know, you were doing stuff you didn't really want to be doing. But then when you got to college and you were studying what you wanted to be studying, you did quite well. You go to a Harvard Business School, rest is kind of history. But, um, you know, you were talking a little bit about, uh, you know, some of the trouble you got in. Uh, in your early days in your career, uh, punching your boss in the face. He was actually a real good guy, but, uh, you know, but we would have our little backs and forths. And uh, uh, then on New Year's Eve, uh, you know, we had like a big office party and everybody got a bit drunk. And I don't know, we started shoving and, uh, and I, I, I decked him. Then he went home to his wife um, totaled the car on the way home, ruined the wife's uh, vacate, um, New Year's Eve party. Um, you know, when we came back to work, like I thought, well, he's gonna fire me, he didn't fire me, he didn't fire me for that. I wanna to talk to you about uh, Shapers. Um, you know, Walter Isaacson, the, you know, famed uh, author among uh, other titles. Talk about the conversations you've had with him about shapers um well so what do i mean by a shaper um when i decided that i'm um you know wanting to pass along bridgewater to others and i want to get the right ceo i wanted to get um a person a shaper uh who could go from visualization to actualization so Steve Jobs would be a great example of a shaper, or Elon Musk is a great example of a shaper. Somebody who can visualize great and then make that reality happen, which is stuff that I like to do. Um, and so what I did is I went around um, and gave personality tests. Big time people, your, your peers who are shapers. Uh, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, uh, Reed Hastings, uh, for the uh, founder of Netflix, Mohammed Yunus, who uh, came up with microfinance and won, uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, first, I wanted to see what was their type, how did, what, what was their configuration of preferences that made them what they are. So that was good. And then also they were curious about um, not only themselves, but how they could learn and use the test for other people. And it's a big thing for me. This has been like a 25 year thing. I'm going to, we, I just created um, a personality profile test. We call it Principles U um, that I'm gonna make available for everybody for free because um, I believe they're so valuable for an understanding oneself. And then also for understanding what to expect of others and what others are like. Um, so uh, Walter, um, did uh, biographies not only of Jobs, 
thought of um, Einstein, um, uh, Ben Franklin, um, and recently Leonardo da Vinci. So he's fascinated as well with how people think. Um, and so we had a good conversation about that. By the way, all of this stuff um, is available. I put it on a uh, on an app. It's it's called Principles in Action, and you can get it on your app phone. And that conversation with him is on that. But um, um, so that conversation was 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 really great uh, about what they're like and how they think differently. What did you find out when doing the personality assessments with the shapers? Well, uh, deep, 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 compelling need to understand things in a common sense, mechanical way so that they could then take that and visualize. So there were deep independent thinkers and practical at the same time. Quite often you have people with imagination who are not practical and people who are practical with not much imagination, uh, they, had, they had both of those things. Um, they were passionately, unwaveringly um, committed so that it's a high to make discoveries. Um, it was more passionate than anything. That was that. And what was interesting is that um, none of them would let other people, um, the, the, let's say, lesser capabilities of other people stand in the way of the mission. Uh, two, two people who are, who are really give up, gave their lives, really not lost their lives, but devoted their lives to helping others were Mohammed Yunus, as I say, won the Nobel Peace Prize and um, for microfinance, but he developed so many different ways that companies uh, could do um, good and make profits and be self-sustaining. He, he, and then another one, uh, Jeffrey Canada, who came up with Harlem Children's Zone and devoted his life uh, to helping uh, uh, poor black students in bad neighborhoods and had a revolutionary effect. Both of those um, on a particular test showed that um, they would not, not, they were tough on people. They were very tough on people because they could not let um, anything stand in the way of achieving the goal, their own personal sacrifice or other people. Um, so uh, in many of the cases, they um, had abilities to do things which were opposite each other, uh, that one thinks of being as opposite. Um, like, for example, they were creative and structured. So those are the things that come to mind. How about the most interesting experience you've ever had personally with Bill Gates and Elon Musk? Well, um, Elon describing to me, um, you know, how he, why Mars and how, how going to Mars is important to him. Um, you know, and, and his curiosity and his ability to learn. Um, and then we talk about, um, you know, life on other planets. Like he, he was saying, you know, um, the planet may not end up being hospitable. Uh, so we need to think about going to Mars and nobody's talking about going to Mars. 
And I sold um, my company. I, I, I think he said it was, I, I got $180 million. I decided I'd take $90 million, try to get uh, inspired to go to Mars. And I said, did you know anything about all that stuff? And he, he said, no. Um, you know, I was just curious. And, um, and his curiosity and his learning from others and his imagination uh, let him do what SpaceX has become. Bill, um, in terms of, obviously, there are things that he understands, vaccines and, um, and you know, infectious diseases and so on, but uh, philanthropy or helping people or um, uh, technology, including artificial intelligence and, and so on, then I think they would agree with me um, that um, their real advantages come from knowing how to deal with what they don't know more than anything they know. So they have voracious appetites. Um, it, it's very different than most people perceive very successful uh, people like that. Uh, they think, wow, they know a lot. Um, and they uh, think, wow, they've accomplished a lot or even wow, they're rich uh, and wow, they're powerful. And it's not like that at all. It's more uh, like um, they're, they're, they're curious. Leaders, uh, there was no leader you admired more than the late Singapore leader, uh, Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, tell about the dinner that you had at your house. Um, well, it was um, w with him and um, I had um, Paul Volcker, who I, uh, Federal Reserve Chairman and um, and then I had Bob Ruman, who was the Treasury Secretary. And so we were uh, around the table and um, we went around and, and um, asked him uh, what, you know, who were the best leaders, what were the, who were the worst leaders, what was the complexion of the existing leaders, um, you know, and so we got uh, all of his, all of his thoughts and very interesting man because Singapore is, you know, this little city that um, is kind of a mosquito-infested swamp that had nothing particularly special other than um, he created a culture and a way of operating there um, that made uh, Singapore what it is today. So uh, that was what the, the dinner explored. What was his reasoning for saying uh, Vladimir Putin was uh, one of the best leaders worldwide? He said that you, you have to evaluate a leader within the context of his circumstances. Um, and so if you go into Putin and you know the situation when he took over the Soviet Union, which was Russia at the time because the Soviet Union had fallen apart and there's corruption and there's um, anarchy, literal anarchy, um, and, uh, and they're broke. And uh, Boris Yeltsin, who preceded him, was an alcoholic, and there was no government, and there was no bureaucracy. And he described how uh, he came in, and he had to deal with all of that to create <clears throat> order. And he spoke about the accomplishments uh, to stabilize it, uh, to raise the incomes, to establish the institutions that they didn't have before, those kinds of things. What are the situations in which you've met with Putin, and what did the two of you talk about? Uh, well, there were uh, uh, two conversations um, about economics, 
and in particular, um, the uh, potential of Russia um, to develop capital markets and, uh, and be more efficient in developing the economy, some economics. How does whatever you know, preconceived notion you might have of whoever the world leader is, um, compared to the reality of what you actually find them to be like when you're actually in the room with one of them? The, um, I've learned that uh, preconceived uh, notions of what they're like um, really aren't worth very much. Uh, I'm sure you've experienced that. You speak to a lot of people in the, doing your interviewing, and uh, I'm sure you make that same sort of discovery that um, preconceived notions are not worth very much. I want to take you back to, uh, you know, you're single, uh, living in New York City, get set up on a, a, a blind date. Uh, tell me about it. Uh, well, my wife uh, was from Spain and uh, she came over um, and um, didn't understand too much English. And um, I uh, ha had a friend of mine who was dating um, a close friend of hers and, uh, and we got set up and you know, there was uh, magnetism. And uh, so um, uh, we saw a lot of each other and the language thing didn't stand in the way of the connection. And, um, and so we had that connection and it uh, then led to our relationship. And it's now something like 42 years later. As time passes, obviously, how do you get past the, the language barrier? Well, it starts it starts with with romance, and then um, and then she learns more la language, and you know you get uh, you, you know you get past it. And you've obviously had a, a lot of success in your professional life. How have you figured out how to have the time in your personal life to also have success there? Well, uh, um, my personal life my relationships who i love and um is of paramount importance to me you know i would take my kids uh when they were little kids on um uh, on trips we'd go to china and we'd go to um on business trips and um and it was great i found a lot of ways of of, of mixing them together and then giving them each their own time because um i think the key uh a lot of people face the work-life balance question and I think that they view it largely as a trade-off. And of course it is a trade-off. But um, if one learns how to get more out of an hour, uh, you can have much more in your life. So the capacity of how to squeeze in as much life into life, um, that's, that, that's a skill. And how, how do you f figure out how to effectively manage time better to accomplish that? Uh, well, um, it's, a, it's a combination of um, knowing how to prioritize spontaneously very quickly in terms of things, and then knowing how to uh, delegate better. Um, success is an evolutionary process. So like I started, as I say, out of a second bedroom in my two bedroom house um, apartment, 
and then um, I would, you know, get to work with somebody. If you work with them well, then you can get leverage. Where they're successful, they can just start to do things. That led me to become more and more successful. Let's say more, be able to have the resources to start to hire somebody who could help me do that or do, do in partnership. And so um, then uh, over my period of time, I've been able to produce leverage, uh, a lot of leverage by knowing how to work well to get the most out of other people, to get them to help me get where I want. So for example, I'll have something like 30 direct reports and I'll maybe work with them uh, typically maybe um, an hour for every 50 hours that they will work. And so they'll go out and they'll accomplish great things because I'll pick great people who can. And then we'll touch base on that basis. And so then I can do a lot of things <clears throat> that I couldn't do myself, but I can, you know, when we talk about the ocean exploration or this thing or that, um, I can do that by uh, leveraging myself and prioritizing the time well. And, and um, I also find um, I meditate. Um, I do transcendental meditation. I've done that for uh, over 50 years. And I find that that gives me uh, an equanimity and a creativity that allows me to navigate these things better. So um, it's, it's really uh, that because the work-life balance question um, is, you know, one of the big questions that everybody faces. And I think it's in, in, in the case of, let's say, my kids, um, it's really knowing the quality of time and whatever. So if I took them on a business trip, and we're going to cool places and we're in the hotel room together and we get to talk about those types of things. You know, that's an overlap. Um, and so many times in my life, I found that um, there are two things that I want that I must have. That means I can't have them both. Um, you know, you look at, oh, I have to choose between those two things. And I found with uh, reflection and creativity, and sometimes the input of others, I could so, sort of have about 75% of one and 75% of the other, and I could make that thing happen. But it requires sort of that cleverness, prioritization, and leverage. How did the Beatles get you into meditation? Well, the Beatles uh, went over to India, and they meditated, and then they set up Transcendental Meditation, set up these um, schools. There was one in New York. I was, I think, um, 19 years old, something like that, um, and I wanted to learn, and so I went to the school, and that had um, has had a fabulous Im impact on my life because uh, uh, the brain um, is in layers. In other words, there's a conscious part of our brain. And then there's a subconscious and an unconscious part of our brain. And what meditation does uh, by giving a word called a mantra, it doesn't, it's a sound really. And you repeat that in your mind, it gets you out of your conscious brain. Normally you can't sit there and say, I'm not gonna think, you'll think. By doing this little brain exercise um, and repeating that sound, you don't think about ideas and eventually the sound disappears and you transcend into the subconscious part of your brain. 
That's where creativity and equanimity come from. So the creativity, you know, like if you want to be creative, it's not like you consciously muscle your creativity. It's more like, you know, you take a hot shower and a great creative idea comes to you because uh, it bubbles up from the, that part. And it it's also gives you the calmness to be able to look at all the things that are coming at you. It's almost like in a ninja in a ninja movie. Everything just seems, you know, panic. It's coming at you. You're dealing with it. It gives you that equanimity. So um, I started back then and it has, um, you know, given me a lot of those types of things that have been invaluable. One of the most valuable things that ever happened to me. Your son, Paul, uh, you wrote about this in your book, accomplished filmmaker, uh, graduated college, is in LA for a, a job. Uh, take me through what happened at the front desk in the kind of three year period that uh, followed that of kind of the discovery. Well, okay, so I'll give you the sequence of events. Paul's, um, they're uh, excited about a new job. He's in the hotel. I get a call um, from the police. Paul had gone up to the front desk um, and taken the computer and smashed it and was then put into uh, jail. Um, and the upshot of it, which we found out in the days that followed, is that uh, he had bipolar disorder, still has bipolar disorder. I guess you never get rid of it. He just knows how to manage it. And so um, that began an experience of working ourselves through the system so that he would, you know, how do you deal with that? I think the statistic is something like 24% of the population in one form or another has had been diagnosed as some form of mental illness. So we all are dealing with this <clears throat> in some particular capacity. My version of that was uh, Paul's bipolar. You know, really happy to say that Paul is one of the most together people as well as one of the most creative people that I know. He's got a wonderful wife and he's and two grandsons that he's, he's given me. The family is wonderful. He's creative. And so for those out there, you know, there's a path and it's a very, very difficult thing. Those three years were hell, you know, at one point, uh, he called me up and, um, you know, he was about to, to take his life because uh, the pain of the depression uh, was just so great. And he just, he wanted to, you know, say goodbye, say, you know, you're, you've been a good dad and so on. And then I, you know, I said, well, you know, I've got to give you a hug. So, um, you know, uh, wait for me and I'm going to come there and we'll, and I'll give you a hug and And I was able to talk him out of it. How were you able to talk him out of it? Well, he, he said he went, you know, he's, it was terribly, terribly, terribly depressing. And he didn't want to, um, the idea of giving up, um, um, a, a, a life, an, an exciting life was not acceptable to him. The medicines numbed him at first. And anyway, so what I, uh, and then he went online and he looked at some st study that basically suggested that he would have this kind of life for the rest of his life. And then we looked at the study and then we uh, found, you know, it was one of those uh, not substantiated studies. And there was a 
psychologist uh, by the name of Kay Jamison, who wrote about bipolar. She was bipolar, is bipolar, and uh, wrote about books and creativity. Very creative people. Bipolar people have more like um, Nobel Prizes for literature and, and very, very creative. And because insanity is almost at the edge of uh, brilliance. And anyway, he met her. Um, we got them together, and that's what got him on the right path. There's, there's his film, by the way, uh, Touched with Fire. It's on Amazon Prime, I think, um, and, it'll, and it'll take you through the experience and what it's like. Katie Holmes is one of the stars of it, and there's actually a, a scene in there where um, it, I think it's based on a real-life uh, interaction between the two of you where he, he was having a manic ac episode and you're trying to reason with him. Uh, what do you remember from that? The person has got to want to be better, but that's very difficult because when you're going one way or crazy one way or another and so on, you don't, you're not rational. What happened was, so he's now on his own. He's a young man. I think he was probably 28 at the time and he's living in an apartment and he is going manic and, um, and he's not working um, and he needs to work. Um, and, um, and, and I, and, and then what do I do? Like, do I give him, do I give him food? Do I not give him food? Uh, you know, like if I give him food, it nurtures this. If I don't give him food, he doesn't have nutrition. So, um, and there's a scene in the apartment um, in which what I did was I bought him uh, 25 cans of tuna fish because I figure he's going to get sick of tuna fish, but if he's hungry enough, he'll eat. So I bring this in and, 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 and but his logic was at the time, um, it's not a problem. I can um, um, go to Starbucks or my, and, and I can get off the little milk and I could eat ketchup. And, uh, and then he didn't pay his electric bill. So, and his place is a mess. And so you'll see it in that early scene, what it, what it was like, books all over, and then him uh, doing all sorts of crazy things and so on. And that was what the interaction was like. Um, and so anyway, to cut uh, a long story short, um, there were two big cycles uh, the cycle goes from a mania to a depression, mania, depression, and so on through that. And the key is to be able, when you're in the middle and you're kind of reasonable, to be able to um, capture that and keep it uh, reasonable and doing the right things, which uh, at, at we were able to do, he was able to do after uh, a couple of those. Um, and, but it required a big change in lifestyle and, uh, he came to love his new lifestyle. Um, and, uh, he's fabulous. I want to ask you about two pivotal kind of moments in your life on the professional front. Uh, the first being, uh, uh Bunker Hunt, who was at the time, the richest man in the world. You were doing work with him, uh, lessons learned from witnessing that. Bunker was a Texas oil family, um, made a lot of um, money in the oil business, and he bought a lot of silver as a hedge against inflation. And the price of silver went from $1.29 to over $60. And he bought it in futures contracts, and he made 
himself the richest man in the world. I was uh, trading commodities and I was, and this was 1978 and 79. And he went from the richest man in the world uh, to the poorest man in the world um, because as the price of silver fell, he would get a margin call. He had to put up more and more cash till he couldn't do it anymore. And then the government had to get involved because he had so many assets that if he defaulted on those assets, it would be an economic problem. Um, and you, you can't default on the IRS. So all that wealth was wiped out. In my case, I got out at, I don't know, $12 or something. It went to 60. So I was kicking myself and then it fell down uh, and plummeted like that. And over the years, I've seen a fair number of people who were, you know, riding high and, um, and, uh, and went broke for one reason or another, T too much concentration on too many risks makes, makes me very risk averse and makes me, uh, at these experiences, makes me want to have a lot of diversification, which is a big part of my strategy. And why you go more after the singles and doubles as opposed to the home runs. But w what did uh, 1982 and what you went through uh, with the incorrect prediction teach you uh, as well, which, you know, later that will apply was, to that Bridgewater. Was, that was the um, toughest experience and the best experience that happened to me. So I calculated that American banks had lent a lot more money to come countries that than those countries could pay back because now this tight money was going to make them go bust. And I was um, public about that. And um, it was considered very controversial point of view. And it, it happened in August 1982. Mexico defaulted on its debt, and a number of countries followed. And then I was asked to testify to Congress to explain what was going on. And so having gotten the silver move and the other move right and, and discounting, I thought I knew what I was talking about. And I couldn't have been more wrong. I lost money for me, I lost money for my clients. And um, I lost so much money um, and, and I didn't have much, but I had to let people go in Bridgewater. And I, um, I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help to take care of the family business. And the effect that that had on me and my thinking uh, was terrific. Um, it, it gave me the humility I needed to bounce with my audacity. It made me think, how do I know I'm not wrong? Which then changed my approach to decision-making a lot um, in two important ways. Uh, we were talking about this earlier. Um, I wanted to find the smartest people I could find who would disagree with me and to try to find their reasoning and to stress test my thinking. And, and that's the idea of an idea meritocracy that you've since built at Bridgewater. Yep. Right. Because what I want is I want independent thinkers because you have to be an independent thinker to do well in the markets or to be an entrepreneur. And I was both, right? I had to beat the markets and I was starting run and running a company. And so you have to have independent thinkers. Um, so I wanted independent thinkers and I wanted to have that debate, that idea meritocracy. And we had to find a process, a system 
in which we could have that thoughtful disagreement to stress test our ourselves and get to the best possible answer. Um, so that's what came out of that particular experience. And from that experience, and then knowing how to diversify in a way that wouldn't reduce my returns. In other words, I, I learned that if I could structure my bets so that they would have about equal uh, expected values in terms of the trades, but that they were uncorrelated bets, kind of like a casino does. You know, you have a lot of tables, but you have the odds uh, in your favor. But because of that diversification, you can be effective. Those things allowed from that point on for me to take uh, Bridgewater from where it was over the next many years to when uh, Fortune um, described it as the fifth most important uh, private company in the country. You've called it an intellectual Navy SEAL type I I experience. What does what the hiring process entail? Well, there are uh, three things that, three broad categories of things that people bring with them that we, we look at. Um, values, abilities, and skills. Values are like, what are you working for? What is the thing that excites you? What's your passion and what, what is your goal? Um, abilities are um, those natural abilities. Some people are creative, some people are reliable, some people could do math, some people could do art. Those are the abilities. And skills are the things that you learn. You know, uh, you learn to program, you learn to speak a language, those kinds of things. I think that most companies hire mostly for skills. I think that's the least important thing. I think the most important thing uh, is uh, the values. Uh, what are we going to be like together? So um, uh, to describe um, Bridgewater and what I think is a, a great set path to success is I wanted an idea meritocracy in which the goals were to have meaningful work and meaningful relationships and to get there through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. And so what I mean by, let's say, the idea of meritocracy, how does the best idea win out? When I say meaningful work, I mean to be on a mission to produce something great. I imagine in this show, you love being on your mission of, of, of doing it great and delivering it to your audience, and that is your mission. And if you're on a mission, with other people who you have meaningful relationships with. It's, um, you know, that you're in it together and you care about each other. That is extremely powerful and it's extremely joyous, but through radical truthfulness, meaning we'll talk about anything, bring your ideas on the table, well, let's knock them around, and radical transparency, meaning everybody can pretty much see everything so that there's no spin and it's not hidden, that was my magic formula for success. You've spoken about how uh, there's high turnover in the first 18-ish months of a new employee coming, but then it's much lower over time. Um, explain why. Well, it's this tough love, you know, um, and also very high standards. So like you did, I described it as an intellectual Navy SEALs, you know, a lot of people come, they say, um, eager to be here and so on. We make sure that they know what it's like. And it's very appealing for people who wanna find out uh, what are their strengths and weaknesses and also wanna build on those weaknesses. But 
to learn about. Do you want to know your weaknesses? And so that could be challenging for some of them. And so there's a washout period, sort of, for those reasons. But it would be almost like a Navy SEAL or somebody. Once you get into the mission and you're into, like, I want to get stronger and I'm, have those meaningful work and those meaningful relationships, that's a high. That's something that you can't replace by a normal job in which you walk into an, you know, a, a company and you don't have those kinds of relationships. You don't have that. A lot of environments, you can't go into the company uh, and you can't say what you really think. You can't be critical of your boss. You can't be critical of other boss. You can't work yourself through disagreements. Bridgewater people can be critical of you regardless of seniority level. Yeah, yeah, it's not, and it's not meant in any way nasty. And so it would be like a team. You know, you have to field a great team. And when you do, um, you know, the, the, the coach or somebody's going to say, okay, well, you're just not, you know, sinking the baskets or uh, throwing the blocks or whatever it is. Um, and you have to talk about that and how to deal with that. So that's what it's like. It's like being on that kind of great team in which we, you have to win and you have to talk openly about it and you can't be shy about exploring those things. But we never have a view really where the employee, if the employee um, has a different view of things, um, what we do is we go through a series of tests. Well, what about this one? And what about that one? How do we find out what, what is true together? Because the big thing is, how do you know you're right? How do you know it's true? And so when you do with that evidence-based and you approach those things that way, that's what the environment's like. So it can be challenging that way, but it also means like, you know, I don't want to get off this team. The culture of Bridgewater's obviously gotten a lot of attention over the years, and it ha has to be understandably irritating when you feel like uh, media outlets get it wrong. Um, in many cases, the story is more important than the truth. And so people will, um, will sort of take something and make it distorted. So um, when it's done intentionally, but it, it, it's not just to me, it's when I read the news and I know the other circumstances. That's why uh, it's really good to have a legal system or a system in which there's a way of finding out what's true. But there's a lot of um, absence of truth in the media. An aspect that's gotten a lot of attention, um, it has to do with like monitoring employees. Um, explain uh, what Bridgewater does and the value that you see in that. It, it, it's not monitoring employees. It's um, that uh, almost everything is taped for anybody to listen to. Like I have a rule, you can't talk behind somebody's back critically. Basically, if you're critically talking behind somebody's back, like three times you're out. You can bring it up openly and you can talk about anything openly. So the idea of being able to let anybody into most conversations is a transparency question, not a monitoring question like that. It's not like that. Tell about the baseball card system. What we do is we collect a lot of data. Um, so there's a lot of data in meetings. We have a, um, uh, a tool we call the dot collector where people express their views. There's lots of data. And then, uh, and then of course, there's the regular um, people give reviews of other people. 
there's a lot that they have tests of how well did they do on this project. It's graded, all of that information. And, and dot, yeah. dot collecting's on an ongoing basis. Like that's, yeah. yeah. Uh, th through meetings. It's just registering what you're thinking and also communicating it with other people. And then uh, what that does is uh, it creates a lot of information. And though that information uh, creates a pointless picture of you. So think about it like a baseball card. Um, okay, what's your runs batted in? What's, what are, the, um, what are your, the different people think your strengths and weaknesses are? It's a lot of that transparency, that kind of information. That's what a baseball card is. So it should be something that basically says, uh, for this person, I can pass it to you and you could see the evidence of what that person is like. And then they are part of that participating in terms of that baseball card. They can explain it, they describe it. And they, the most important thing is that they have to believe this, that the system is fair. So you know if you're looking for a creative person who might be less detail oriented or somebody who's attentive to detail but less creative, who you would uh, find based on the scoring system. What we can do from that, that data, which has is, is been invaluable, is we can see who succeeds in jobs and what their attributes are. Well, the more data that you have along those lines, you can use to say, what are the attributes that make those people successful in that type of job? And from that, you can create a job specification. In other words, I want these types of measurements of that type of person. Um, and you can go out there and look for those qualities to fit get the great fit, or you can look within your organization, who has those qualities that work fit best for that kind of job. So it's invaluable. With transitioning out of leading Bridgewater and you know removing yourself kind of from the day-to-day -day responsibility and commitments, obligations you were talking about, um, what obstacles have you encountered during that process? And what do you think uh, you need to do to get to where you want to be on that front in a perfect world? As a natural part of the process, it's like a, uh, like a parent-child relationship to some extent. One has to find out what are the needs, what are the things that I had that were helpful that have to be replaced, and also um, to make sure that I'm not um, that I'm a good helper, a good mentor, but that I don't stand in the limelight or don't um, tell any people what to do. It's like a parent of a 45-year-old. You know, I, I ask, you want any thoughts? It's your life. <laughs> um, I, I don't feel any desire. It seems totally unnatural to control. That's the free of obligation and the joy, there's a joy of mentoring. With uh, your great wealth, you uh, commented on the philanthropic front before um, that sometimes you've noticed that the richest people feel like they fall short of the money they need to do the things that they wanna do. Um, yeah, elaborate well, on that if you don't mind. Well, yeah, I think that a lot of people think um, rich people must feel rich and that actually what happens is um um i don't when you start to get into philanthropic things i'm i'm a i'm a um uh not a guy i'm a guy who uh kind of 
dislikes luxury. I mean, I like comfort, but I don't, uh, um, um, you know, I'm, uh, it's uh, been pointed out that you have not, you know, indulged in some of the same extravagant purchases that's, you know, common. I don't like, I don't like that. I'm, I'm, I grew up in a simple background and I don't, I'm basically, my whole background is, is not to like that. And then you get to a point where, uh, and then you empathize. I, w I grew up in the background I described and I was lucky because I had two parents who loved me and I was went to a school, a public school, and I look at those situations and I think that that's fundamental and that everybody should have those basic things taken care of and basic health care and th those kinds of things, basic things taking care of children, all should be and so on. So you start to find um, that there are things that matter to you. And then you realize how little money you have to be able to affect those things adequately. And, and so that's, um, so I think that they think, people think people who are rich or even powerful people, I meant powerful people, heads of state and so on, uh, they don't feel that they're powerful and they don't feel that they're rich. It's one of those things where uh, people's uh, thoughts of what it must be like for those people um, are not correct. How many hours a week do you work now? What's work? I mean, if you ask me how many hours a week do I do uh, things that I'm excited about, you know, then I would say, uh, I don't know, 80 hours a week. Uh, and I don't do things that I'm not excited about. If you're in dealing with the markets, the economy, what's going on in the world, that's a passion. It's like a game that I started when I was 12. And I continue to play that. And I love that. The ocean exploration, the, you know, all different interesting places in the world, all different interesting people. I love the outdoors. I like nature. I, I like bow hunting and uh, I like diving. I like all. So I don't know what work is. How does it compare in terms of the, the time commitment to when you were like grinding the most? I think the big difference is obligation, responsibility. I decided that I was going to be free of all obligations, no obligations. If I want to wake up in the morning and I want to go do something, I'm always going to be free. And so that was the big change, right? But I'm excited about a lot of things. And you wrote in your book on that front, uh, to me, the greatest success you can have as the person in charge is to orchestrate others to do things well without you. And then you went on to say, I could see that despite all of my and Bridgewater's amazing achievements, I had not achieved this highest level of success. How do you feel about that today? It's the thing that I'm um, doing to try to pass it along. It's my, it's my mission and whether I succeed at it or not, um, I'll be happy with my at attempt. And so um, let's say, why am I on this uh, interview? Um, I'm on, uh, I'm on the interview because I want to pass along some things that were helpful. And then there's a phase in your life where you don't uh, want to be more successful. And that instinctually you want others to be good without you. And you want to be free to live and free to die. Or it's also pass along the money, you know, another, uh, I've earned money. So to think about how to pass it along philanthropically. All of those are uh, things that at this stage in life come naturally. How do you go about determining 
what to leave the family and where to allocate the resources to do good? I sort of have a, an anti-luxury thing. I want to be able to make sure my kids and my grandkids can get um, education and medical attention. And I think that the more you give, the less, the more you're denying struggling. And that struggling is what makes people stronger. So I, I approach it that way. And then I, and then I have empathy for people around us or the things. And so I find the things that I believe are important or exciting. And, um, you know, and then I support that. And you made the point that the most successful people that you're around, even those that are successful beyond their wildest dreams, uh, still struggle more than bask in the glory. Yeah. And I, and I also want to say that I, what I define as a successful person isn't somebody who has a lot of wealth and power. I mean, that that's a type of success. That's so a common definition of success. Successful is really having a, 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 a good life. And in many cases, um, there are very uh, simple people having simple lives um, that are rich. The, the ability to have those relationships. See, I'm lucky because I had nothing and I've had a lot, so I know what the whole range is like. And I uh, would say that um, knowing what that whole range is like, you know, you don't need much to have a successful life. You, you do really, I think you need the healthcare, you need the education, you need the food, you need the basics. But once you have those things, and then you have the meaningful work and the meaningful relationships, you've got everything that matters. Um, the more you have, the more you have to take care of. And you can be on top of taking care of all those things and they can become obligations. So I want to make clear that while we're asking about successful, there's quote, you know, successful, maybe made a lot of money. I was lucky in that the game that I played happened to pay a lot of money if you played it well. Uh, but I could have been um, playing any other game. It was like a kid playing a video game for me um, and, and then all of a sudden finding video games play well, pay well. But um, I think the joy can be in whatever career there's, you know, so simple things. You've talked about the American dream. Um, you know, if you were growing up today, in what ways do you think it would be more difficult for you to achieve success? I was born in 1949. That 1945 was the beginning of the New World War Order, the end of World War II and the American orders. And there was a belief that there should be equal opportunity. And this is deeply embedded in me. It would very much depend now a lot more on the family that one is born into. Um, you know, um, it is more difficult because of the wealth gap. It is perpetuating because those who earn more money can spend more money on their children's education. For example, the top 40% of the population spend five times as much money on their children's education than those in the bottom 60%. So that's very unfair. I watch in, um, at, and we're helping children in the worst, most challenging school districts uh, with the most power, uh, po uh, poverty in Connecticut. Connecticut has the largest wealth gap. Um, they don't have um, computers or connectivity for education. There's, there's poverty in terms of food and so on. 
So I think it very much uh, depends on where you're born. The system has got to be fair. Fair means, I think, most fundamentally, like e equal education, equal health care, and at least striving for that. So um, it, it, the answer to your question today, um, there's greater polarity and there's uh, less of a common belief that um, equal opportunity is um, essential. What changes would you make? Well, um, you know, at the big picture level, um, I would want to make sure that there was uh, equal education um, and, and basic equal um, level of health care um, um, and, and, you know, starting particularly with the children. I think um, the thing that worries me is um, people not doing it together, um, that uh, people are at each other's throats. And uh, some know how to make the pie grow bigger, and some know how to divide it better. Um, what I would do uh, along those lines is to bring people of uh, different perspectives together um, and help have them necessarily work in a bipartisan way so that we can reorient the country um, to be on the same path. I'm worried about particularly the fragmentation in the country. Um, but anyway, um, certainly um, equal education. And education is not just learning the skills, reading, writing, and all of that. Um, it's also learning uh, values, behavior, and character. And um, um, I would want to see even more of that in schools. I think, um, I think that's important. How much of it's a taxation issue and how much is simply a resource allocation issue? Well, those two things are, 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 um, are together. Um, let's say education. Now, I'm assuming when you say it, we're talking about education. The Constitution makes education a state issue. And then within each state, there's typically a tax district issue. There are rich tax districts and there are poor tax districts. If you live in a rich tax district, you probably your public education is probably very good. If you live in a poor tax district, your public education is bad. And so there's a self-perpetuating problem that children being raised in a bad neighborhood um, um, and, and having their parents, um, there are also problems with parents because the parents were not themselves uh, raised to have um, a good job or responsible behavior and so on. So that there's, it's, it's a self-perpetuating problem. So, but it's structural um, and we've allowed it to get that way. Uh, but I think in one way or another, um, there's no excuse for not being able to get um, adequate financial resources that kids, I see some school districts, kids don't have um, adequate pencils or books. But nowadays, let's say you, you need a computer and you need connectivity. Um, today, if you don't have a computer, uh, you can't learn. Um, a lot of learning now is on schools, but learning, uh, even doing your homework or going beyond that with a computer, it's basic. And not having connectivity is like 50 years ago, not having uh, running water in your house. And so those kinds of things, I think that there's you know, just not a, no excuse for um, not providing. Then you have to deal with the question of how to provide it. And that's 
you know, that's a um, um, mechanical question. I, th I think it could be engineered, but the engineering has to be, you know, how does a central government deal with it? Well, a big issue of states is they can't print money. You know, what happens is the federal government can run all these debts and all this deficit. And the way it works is the Federal Reserve prints money and it lends it to the federal government so that it can run its deficits. It doesn't lend it to the state government. And so because of that, they have um, restrictions on that budget and that causes a hollowing out. So there's mechanics about how to deal with that uh, that enter into, you know, how to achieve it. But I think it, it, it must be achieved. Um, I really do believe um, that we're at the risk of, um, you know, wasting resources in a system that people don't believe is fair and can produce a lot of conflict rather than efficiency. And when all that energy goes into fighting with each other, uh, rather than to working well with each other to make productivity happen. It's very bad for the society. And you said conflict is the most likely and result of what will lead to the change. Yes, because, I mean, just as a, a basic principle, if you have a large wealth gap and you have a lot of debt, and you have an economic downturn, you're probably going to have a clash. And when the cause or causes that a people are behind are more important to them than the system and how the system for making decisions works well, uh, the system is in jeopardy. And we're very close to those points. R really? Well, you can see it. Uh, um, like I, as I say, I, I see it in Connecticut, but you can see, um, the wealth gap, uh, problem, how to, how to redistribute. And we have a lot of debt and this is when we can still borrow and print money. You could be in an environment where, um, there's too much of that and the world doesn't want to accept it. And then you get a worse situation. It's covered in all of that's covered in my LinkedIn pieces, uh, the changing world order, if anybody wants to read about that. How would you best explain what's happening with the changing world order? Well, um, there are three, three big things happening. Uh, the first has to do with money and debt. Uh, you get to a part of the cycle where uh, central banks lower interest rates and they can't lower them anymore and they print money and they buy financial assets and that doesn't work because it doesn't get them in the hands of others. And so there's this printing of money and, um, and you're seeing it. So we, we saw it with uh, the, the programs that happened, but there's no getting around it. You need to provide that money, but it diminishes the value of that money, particularly it could hurt the US dollar as being a reserve currency. So that's one. Then there is this polarity of um, uh, opportunity and wealth and politics, which produces the conflict. And then there's the rise of China challenging the existing power in the United States. And all of those things are going on much like they did in, in the late 1930s. Where do you see the country 10 years from now? It all, it really all depends on harmony and being able to row in the right direction 
Um, and um, it's, uh, it's a very difficult situation. What makes your gut tell you that? Well, there are certain things uh, in the arc that you can't change uh, easily. Um, for example, if you are spending more than you are earning, which is the case for the country as a whole, and that's a problem. I think there are good things, um, don't get me wrong. Um, I think there's technology advent, uh, advances will help productivity, but the nature of those technology advances, most importantly, thematically, is that the technology is replacing people too. Um, so productivity, the ability to do things better is improved, but then you still have uh, the issue of the wealth gap. So I would say between now and 10 years from now, you will see um, some form of revolutionary changes in how things will work. Probably a lot of conflict to get there. Probably, you know, a power struggle. I would say that you will see um, a more powerful, successful China. Um, I think you'll see um, the reserve, the U.S. dollar's role in the world uh, diminished. And I, you know, I just hope we can, you know, get on working uh, together in a harmonious way and put our energies into making good things happen the way that existed really like in the uh, 1960s. Thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger and visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.